turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'd like to ask, what makes a person a spiritual difference maker? I want you to be thinking about people that, in your life, you would say, you know, these are spiritual difference makers. Or I, I saw this. Maybe they were a, was a coach, maybe a school teacher, maybe someone at your church, um, maybe it was a missionary or a pastor, parent, grandparent. What, what was it about them? What were their qualities? What characteristics did they have that were influential upon you? I've been thinking about some of the spiritual difference makers in my life. Uh, starting all the way back into high school, I went to a large high school, and there were a couple of fellow classmates that had a, just a genuine, authentic love for Jesus and were trying to reach me with the gospel. Think of back my years at the University of Oregon and running into various Christians that had significant influence in my life. And then when I was in the business world up in Portland, I, I think of some others that made significant investments in me. And I, I found that they actually had certain qualities all in common, though they were very different people and found in different parts of the country. You might be thinking like, well, I can maybe think of some spiritual difference makers, but I myself could never consider that I might be a spiritual difference maker. And I want you to actually challenge some of your thinking. I really believe that God intends for you and I, in our spheres of influence, in our homes, schools, uh, in this church, in this community, at work, he intends for us to be a spiritual difference maker. But you're like, oh, you know, wait a second. How am I supposed to do that? You know, like, I'm a mom, you know, I've got a 24-7 job. I never get a break, and there's just so many things that i got to do. And being a spiritual difference maker, I wouldn't even, I didn't I know what to do. I'm just trying to get everything done. Maybe you're thinking, like, I've got uh, all my classes, all my extracurricular stuff, music, band. i got athletic stuff. i got more homework than I've got brain cells. I, the idea of being a spiritual difference maker, I don't know. Uh, maybe you've got your job, and you're like, what are you talking about? I am doing good just to make it. I want you to be thinking about what makes a person a spiritual difference maker. I really believe that God intends for us to be just that. And let me tell you, you and I, we're called to bloom where we're planted. I want you to know that relationship with Christ makes all the difference in our lives. And it's really interesting, as we're going through chapter 2, and as we're making our way through the book of 1 Thessalonians, you're going to see three characteristics of what a spiritual difference maker really looks like. How relationship with Christ really brings about change. And Paul is actually outlining this for the very purpose that these qualities would not only be demonstrated and manifested in the Thessalonians, but they're written for our instruction as well. So let me have you take a look at chapter 2, beginning in verses 1 and 2. I want you to see that relationship with Christ builds and develops a confident faith. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we'd already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. You see, our faith in Christ, and we saw this last week, what it does is it helps us to know that there is purpose in our suffering. And that's what he was saying here. You know, I want you to know our coming to you was not in vain. You remember that we actually showed up in Thessalonica, and they actually had in, on their bodies, maybe you could see it on their face, certainly could see it on their back, they'd actually been beaten, mistreated. They'd actually been wrongly even uh, uh, put in prison. They were Roman citizens, but they never even had a trial. They just 
assumed guilty. And he says, you know, you know the difficulties we had back in Philippi. But our coming to you, that wasn't in vain. Our suffering, even in our suffering, there's purpose to it. And Paul is saying, you're very well aware of that. But not only does our faith in Christ enable us to see that there is purpose in our suffering, but there is power in God's presence. Look what he says in verse 2. He says, but after we'd already been suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. You see, even though we go through difficulties and hardships, our circumstances are far from ideal, we have the presence of God that changes everything. There is a boldness, a courage, a confidence that comes from our faith in Christ. And he says, you're well aware of that. I want you to know that the spiritual difference makers in my life, they had a confident faith. They went through troubles and difficulties, but at the heart, they had a confidence that God was with them. And as a non-Christian, this idea of a faith, a confident faith in Jesus, I found that to be very attractive. In fact, it was inspiring. You'll find it to be contagious. And that's exactly what we see with these folks here. Even though they went through difficulty, they had this faith in Jesus that kept shining. If you're a difference maker, you, that's one of the things that makes you a difference maker. You have this faith in Jesus. It's kind of like a, a quarterback. You know, a quarterback has to stand up under pressure, right? They got all these l- defensive linemen and linebackers blitzing and sometimes the occasional cornerback or safety. They come flying in there and the quarterback's job is to stay in the pocket and deliver the pass. And he's not supposed to abandon his post. We're kind of like that. We've got problems coming after us. We've got circumstances, but we have a confident faith in Jesus. Like it says in the text, we had boldness in our God. If you're going to be a difference maker, the relationship that you and I share with Jesus as we pray, as we abide in Christ, as we read his word, as we fellowship with other Christians, what it does is allow us to have a confident faith. Let me give you another characteristic that you're going to find that the relationship with Jesus that we have makes us a difference maker, and that is that God develops a clear integrity. Look at verse 3. He says, For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. What he's saying is, when we came to you, we came to you with integrity. We came to you with integrity on how we handled the Word of God. And it's almost as if after Paul had to leave Thessalonica, that false teachers kind of moved in and they were trying to basically dismantle all the work that they had done. They were trying to show that, uh-uh, this Paul, this guy was trying to corrupt you. He was trying to take advantage of you. And so it's rather polemic. He's actually defending himself. But what he's doing, he says, I want you to call, in, call to mind the way that we handle the word of God, the way we handled ourselves with you. Now, what takes place in the Roman Empire and this time, about 2,000 years ago, you would have traveling philosophers. And some of them were trying just to take advantage of the people that they would kind of come into a city. And they did it for two reasons. One, they wanted to profit off of the people. They wanted the people to basically give them money. But the second thing they would do is there was also, they were immoral. They wanted sexual favors to come their way. And so notice what Paul is saying. You might have missed this, but he says, our exhortation We were not like the dishonest philosophers that just kind of come in and take advantage of people. Our exhortation does not come from error. We aren't deceiving you. There was 
We weren't trying to delude you, nor, look at this, or impurity. We didn't come with impure motives like personal ambition or pride or greed or popularity or, or immoral motives to try to take advantage of you. Now, this may seem kind of foreign to you, but I want you to understand the background of what she's talking about here. What takes place in the mystery religions and the Greek kind of gods and how they were worshipped and the cults that existed, the Romans basically took them over. And one of the ways that made them so attractive is that an element of their worship involved sexual involvement. And so they would have these priests and they would have temple prostitutes. And what they would do is the idea is that if you engage them, and you engaged in some sort of sexual immoral relationship with them, that because they represented the gods, this or their particular god, that relationship with them would make you closer to the gods. It appealed to your flesh, and you felt like you would benefit from them. And so if you want to know just how immoral it was in the ancient world, in the time of Paul, and what he walked into, that's the culture in which they existed. You can kind of see why that would be so alluring and so appealing to people. And that's exactly what was taking place in Thessalonica. But Paul was saying, I want you to know that when we came to you, we came with integrity. We weren't trying to deceive you. We didn't come with impurity. And notice what he said, else he said, or by way of deceit. That word deceit has the idea of like trick or decoy. It's coming, it comes from the fishing and hunting world. You know how it is. You put the decoy out, right? And you're trying to convince those doves that there are more doves here. And you put your decoy out there. Or if you're fishing, right, you've got a lure. Or you put bait out there, and what is it meant to do? It's meant to make the little fish think like, huh, there's a little free lunch just kind of floating by me, right? And they bite into it, and they find out, whoa, it was a trick after all, right? There's a hook here. Whoa, this is taking me places I didn't want to go. Now, I want you to know, the fish are getting smarter, right? But he says, when we came, we didn't try to deceive you. We didn't do nothing immoral. We weren't trying to take advantage of you. False teachers... These false philosophers, false teachers, when they would move in, this is what they do. They'd use sorcery, magic, theatrics, illusion to kind of get the idea like, whoa, this is some sort of mighty power. And people would be attracted to that. And what they would do is they try to gain from their converts either sexual favors or money. He says, we, nothing like that whatsoever. In fact, he says in verse 4, I want you to know how we came to you. Verse 4, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. That word approved has the idea of testing. It's the word that they would use to test metals to prove their authenticity. He says, we have been tested by God and he entrusted us with the gospel. We're merely stewards. We are managers of something that God has given to us. So we don't use the word steward very much, right? But we're pretty familiar with a manager. Let me ask you, does the manager own the resources? So, for instance, if you have a financial manager, good idea. Does that gal, does that guy, do they own your money? No, the answer is no. They don't own it. What do they do? They manage it. What's their job? Their job is to pursue your very best interests. Or if you've got property and you have a property manager... Their job isn't to pursue their own interests, right? Their job is to pursue your interests. What do you want? What's your heart in the matter? What do you want to see accomplished? And they execute it. That's what a good manager does. Friends, we've been entrusted with the gospel. That's what Paul is saying here. We are merely stewards. We've been entrusted with the gospel. The gospel is all that God has done, is doing, and will do 
through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've been entrusted with this message. We've been entrusted with Jesus, the Word of God. We're presenting Him to the lost. We are building up those who are saved. We're managers. And he says, we have come not only with the approval of God, but notice what he says. We have come with before God, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. We're not here to say things just to make people happy. We're not trying to take advantage of people. Actually, we present ourselves before God and he examines our hearts. The heart has to do not only just with your emotion, but your will and your intellect. It's all that's going on inside you, all that processing, all that emotion. He says, God knows our hearts. And we come with genuineness and authenticity. And if you're, if you're going to be a good investor of the gospel, remember like the parable of the talents? Do you just bury it in the ground? No. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to invest it. If you've been entrusted with the gospel, and if you're a Christian, you have, you're not just supposed to guard and protect it, which we must. We want to make sure that the gospel never is in any way, shape, or form uh, torn apart or diminished. But we are actually called to invest it. We're called to go forward. We're called to be difference makers. And you know how you do that? You handle the word of God with integrity. In the early 1990s, President George Bush had a fiery chief of staff, a guy by the name of John Sununu, okay? Quite a character. Being the chief of staff for the President of the United States, probably one of the toughest jobs that you could have. On one occasion, back in the early 90s, a reporter asked John Sununu, hey, is your job being the chief of staff for the President of the United States, is it a difficult job? And Sununu just said, no. And like, the reporter is like, the guy didn't get my question. I'll ask it again. He asked it again, got the same response. And then John Sununu said this, as the chief of staff, I only have one constituent. I've only got one person that I'm trying to make happy. You know who that is? It is the president of the United States. It really doesn't bother me. I don't really care too much what you think about me. I'm not here to make everybody happy. Happy. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to please the president of the United States and do what he's asked me to do. Friends, that's what it looks like for us. We've got one, one audience that we're looking to please. And you know who that is? It's God himself. That's why we put our lives before him. We want God to examine our hearts. We want to handle the word of God with integrity. And not only is it the word of God need to be handled with integrity, but frankly, our whole way of life. If we're going to be difference makers, we have to have integrity with how we live. And that's what he goes on to say. Look at verse 5. He says, for we never came with flattering speech. A flatterer tries to persuade people with insincere speech. What they do is they, they're looking to make personal advancements or, or gain admiration or favors. And so you heap nice sounding phrases upon people. You're, you're trying to manipulate them by saying things that, oh, I know this will make them happy. And, and if they're happy with me, then I'm going to be able to get them to do what I want or give me what I want. It's all manipulation. It's called flattery. He says, we didn't do that. We didn't say attractive words. We weren't trying to just kind of stir up some sort of religious zeal and then just pocket the cash from you. No, not at all. We never came with flattering speech, verse 5. As you know, you know all about us. Nor with the pretext 
for greed, that word pretext has the idea of false motive or pretense just to take your stuff. We weren't coveting. We weren't greedy. We literally lived lives of integrity before you. And he says, verse 5, he says, God is our witness. God knows we handled ourselves with integrity before you. He says, verse 6, nor did we seek the glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. We weren't looking for the admiration of others. We weren't looking for you just to think we're great and mighty. We, even though as apostles, and to help you understand in verse 6, he says, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. What he's saying is, as officially sent out ones, we could have asked for you to financially give to our ministry to help support us. But you know what? In your case, we didn't. In other places, they did. And as churches grew, they started supporting these missionaries and these churches. But he said, when we came to Thessalonica, we actually just worked among you. We never asked you for anything like that because we didn't want any misunderstanding to take place when it came to the gospel. Because we, uh, the, we're, the capital A apostles are those who are officially sent out by God. Little a apostles are those who are sent. And you see this in the first century. They're sent to start churches. They're missionaries. They're, they're evangelists. They're bringing the gospel. We could have asked you, but we didn't. Do you know why? We wanted to handle our way, our lives with complete integrity. In essence, this is what he's saying. When we came to you, our message was true. It wasn't false. Our motive in life was pure. It was not morally corrupt. And our method of ministry was authentic, not deceptive. And I point this out to you as we go through this text because you and I, as difference makers, this is how we have to go about our ministry. In our homes, in our church, in this community, at work, this is desperately needed in our schools. We need to live as people of integrity. That essentially means that you and I are true to the ethical standards, namely God's ethical standards. That this book and the power of the Spirit is reflected in our lives. We want to be someone who is consistent with what the text says. We don't want to send mixed messages. We want to have the right motives. We've got to go about it with the right methods. And so Paul is saying, you know, I'll tell you why we're difference makers. It's because of Jesus. He cultivated this kind of lifestyle in us. In his book, Integrity, Ted Engstrom uh, recounts a particular situation that happened at, among the Bulldogs of Rockdale County High School in Conyers, Georgia. They had a coach, Coach Cleveland Stroud, and he recounts the the season, the championship season for the Bulldogs. Uh, they actually won all five of their playoff games, and they won the state championship in a kind of a dramatic come-from-behind from victory. Got the championship trophy, actually put in a new uh, trophy case for their trophy. And if you've ever been involved in a championship team, I mean, you go back to your high school, you see the championship trophy, right? That is just like something that will always be with you. But in this case, one of the school administrators had figured out that there was a kid on the team who was academically ineligible during the playoffs. I mean, this kid wasn't a starter. He rarely played. But he actually did play in the very first playoff game. He played for 45 seconds. He was not an impact player. Didn't touch the ball. Nothing. But the coach found out. He reported to the Athletic Commission of Georgia. And the trophy was taken away. And I want you to hear Coach Cleveland Stroud's remarks. 
He said this, we didn't know he was ineligible at the time. We didn't know it until a few weeks ago. Some people have said we should have just kept quiet about it, that it was just 45 seconds and the player wasn't an impact player. But you've got to do what's honest and right and what the rules say. I told my team that people forget the scores of basketball games, but they don't ever forget what you're made of. See, God's our witness. He knows. Integrity is important. Your primary ministry is a ministry of character. Do you know that? You are living displays of what it means to know Jesus and to follow him. Those who have been redeemed by the gospel. And I want you to know that non-Christians, they oftentimes completely dismiss the faith because this isn't in play. Especially kind of on a, on a national level. They see folks like on TV. And it, I mean, you don't have to be all that clever to sit and watch some of this and know that it's just downright manipulation. All this stuff that's going on and then they're begging for money and telling people you you send me your funds and I'm going to pray for you or I'll send you a special little cloth or whatever in the mail and people do. You want to know why what goes on? The reason that all they're on they're on TV cuz they're making a lot of money at it. And then of course they go down in flames, selfish desire, human praise, financial gain finds out to be the motives, right? And it's always just one crash after another. And the non-Christian looks at that and goes, I'm, I'm interested in knowing God, but I am not interested in that. And I certainly don't want to end up like whatever I just saw. No thanks. They see it on TV. And frankly, they actually see it in people's lives. They know Christians, but the inconsistency from what they think a Christian should be to actually what they are is like too great and they're like, Nah, whatever you're trying to tell me is a bill of goods. Not interested. See, the secret to integrity is this. It is to not just be pleasing people. That's, that's a, you don't want to be a people pleaser. The secret is this. It is seeking to be pleasing to God. That's what it is. We're living in a day where, and it's actually been a long day, where we say that character doesn't count. Right? All that matters are results. And so we've got, in the political world, business world, athletic world, we have people who are really good at something specific. They can make money, they're good athletes, whatever. And they're, but their, their life is just, like, been blown up, man. It's just a character, uh, just, just a mess. I want you to know that if you're a Christian, character counts. Why? Because God's glory is at stake. You represent Him. To be a spiritual difference maker means that you have to have a life of integrity. And it matters how we treat our family. It matters the ethics in your business, how you do your coursework, how you treat other people, what you do with your taxes, how you carry on your conversation. Why? Because God's glory is at stake. You represent Him. You're called to be a difference maker. The only way you will really be a person of influence is if you not only handle the word of God accurately, but there's a reflection in your way of life that says Jesus is Lord. You know, when you're uh, criticized, and you will be, right? When you're criticized, honestly, just evaluate yourself. And do this. Ask God, God, would you examine my actions and my motives? 
And he'll, he'll show you if there's inconsistencies with his word. I mean, it'll become apparent to you. And, uh, but if it's not, it'll be actually rather affirming. Like, you know, no, you're doing it right. And when you're targeted with criticism, respond factually, not defensively. And let me give you one other thing. Don't let criticism paralyze you. Don't let it paralyze you where you, you're just out, out of commission. Because we are believers of the gospel. God always forgives us in Christ. Yeah, we're far from perfect. That's why we're big believers in Jesus, right? We know our failures. We know that we're sinners. But it's not just enough to know that we're forgiven. God wants us to develop holiness of life. It's called sanctification. And he gives us the strength. He gives us the instruction of the word. He surrounds us with the communion of the saints. And we grow in holiness. But I want you to know that deceitfulness will destroy your ministry. It'll destroy your ministry in the church, at home, at work, at school, in this community. And it's really interesting. Your integrity and how you handle yourself, it's one of the primary means the gospel is advanced in the people you know, because they see that Jesus is real. A while back, the Burke Marketing Research asked executives in 100 of the nation's thousand largest companies, what qualities and employees irritate bosses the most? What do you think it might be? At the top of the list was this, dishonesty, being deceitful. Mark Silbert, the firm that commissioned, he's the employee of the firm that commissioned uh, this study, he said this statement, if a company believes that an employee lacks integrity, all positive qualities ranging from skill and experience to productivity and intelligence become meaningless without integrity. Some of you are familiar with uh, Ken Wales. He's an award-winning TV and film producer. Um, You may not know a little bit of how he got started in Hollywood. When he got started, he was an actor. Early in his career, uh, he chose to turn down a decent, significant role in a movie that conflicted with his faith. In this particular time, he was under contract with MGM. He was cast in a film that was starring Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, and Shirley MacLaine. And his character uh, was in the script, at one point was to basically entice a young woman to get drunk, and then he was supposed to take advantage of her. And as a Christian, he's just like, I can't do that. I, I, I can't do it on the TV. I certainly can't do it in real life. I, I can't do it for the movie. And so he went and met with the actual um, director. Now, he'd been speaking to church groups as a Christian. God had been giving him a platform. And uh, so he met with Vincent Minnelli, who was the director. And he said, listen, I, I can't do it. And Minnelli told him, listen, you'll do it or you're going to be cut out of your contract and you're going to go on suspension and you're going to have no salary for a year and I'll see to it that you never work in this town again. And then he literally threw him out of the office. And that's exactly what happened for Ken. He went on suspension. He didn't make any money. It was tough. While he was on suspension, um, he was speaking uh, to different groups of Christians. At one particular occasion, he was in Denver, Colorado speaking to about 600 students. After they finished their session, they were going to go out to pizza and out to a movie. And as they're walking, 
on the marquee of a particular movie theater was the very same movie that he actually turned down to have that role in. And he was thinking, wow, what if I had taken the role? What if the kids actually went in and saw that movie and what I did? And he was so glad that he took a stand for Christ, for integrity. In fact, even though that was a real difficult time in his life, he, he actually now says it was the turning point to decline that role. Because he went on to become a film and a TV producer. Such films and TV shows like Christy or the uh, highly acclaimed movie Amazing Grace. He was the director of that. In fact, there was a movie that just came out not too long ago called Captive. You remember um, that guy, Brian Nichols, who he kills a sheriff, deputy, a court reporter, an FBI officer, and then he actually apprehends Ashley Smith. Remember her? Holds her, holds her, cap, holds her captive. And she's the single mom. She's got a meth addiction that she's trying to fight. And someone has given her that book, Purpose Driven Life. And she tries to reason with him from that book. And it's now a movie. And of course, I think we're all familiar with how God views that particular woman and that, how this all unfolded. He's the guy that directed that movie. Friends, you and I, we need integrity. We need integrity with how we handle the Word of God. It's why we will give ourselves to this book and we want to treat it and teach it accurately. But we also need integrity with our life, how we handle ourselves. If you and I are going to be difference makers, we've got to have, uh, really, a confident faith in Christ. We have to have a clear integrity. But let me give you something else. We need to have a compelling love. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, But we... We prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. This is interesting. This kind of imagery of a a nursing mom, this is actually the imagery that Moses used when he talks about his relationship with Israel. And he says, we demonstrated, you saw, we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing, nursing mother Tenderly cares. That word tenderly cares has the idea of warming with your own body heat. He says, this is how we love you. It's interesting, like, the the whole idea of a nursing mom serving as a a picture of spiritual leadership. When you go to a leadership seminar, has anybody ever been to a leadership seminar that encouraged you to, what you need to do is act like a mom? No? Has it ever happened? No. Because we see that as sentimental, weak, and unproductive. But friends, I'll tell you, if you want to be a spiritual difference maker, you might want to consider what Paul is saying here in verse 7. You know, the spiritual diet of a parent actually affects their children. That's especially true with nursing moms, right? And I want you to consider leading like a mother. How does a mom lead? By the way, I think the toughest and the most important leadership position anywhere is being a mom, right? They're taking people made in the image of God and they're shaping humanity. And how does a mom lead? They're encouraging, they're supporting, they're challenging, they're nurturing. Why? Because they're doing everything they can to see their children succeed. That's how moms are. That's why they live. That's why they sacrifice. They do everything. They're uniquely wired to do this. And Paul says, you know what? When we came to you, we came like a mom. This Even though it's foreign to how people think about leadership, this is what leadership really looks like. It looks like really loving people. It's like you understand that children don't grow up instantly. 
I didn't grow up instantly. I feel like I'm still in process. My kids certainly didn't, aren't growing up instantly, but they are growing. And that's how it is when you people come to the faith. They experience love. And as they come to Christ, there's a lot of growth that needs to take place. A lot of missteps. A lot of patience is needed. If you want to be a spiritual difference maker, you want to be one that has a compelling love. Pretty powerful being a mom or leading like the text says here in verse 7. In Citizen Magazine, they had this kind of unique online auction. And one of the items was a mother's touch. A guy by the name of Dan Baber, he wanted to honor his mother. So they posted this, and he, he titled it Best Mother in the World. He wanted to honor his mother, Sue Hamilton. And this was on this online auction. It's going to be posted for seven days. And the highest bidder would get an email from Dan's mom, Sue, and he said this, it would make you feel like the most special person on the earth. So you're thinking like, okay, that's weak. (laughs) No one's going to want that, right? So in the seven days, you know how many hits this particular mother's touch had? 42,711 people looked into this. By the way, that would fill most baseball stadiums. The... um, Starting out bid was $1. 92 people in seven days bid on this mother's touch. It went for $610 at closing. That's really interesting. How many people are willing to pay for something that most mothers give for free? Friends, this is what spiritual leadership looks like. You actually care. You're engaged. You love. You listen. You have a willingness to learn. You want to understand. You want to encourage. You speak the truth in love. Friends, this is what spiritual difference makers looks like. And look what he says in verse 8. We did this because having so fond an affection for you. We loved you from the heart. This isn't just going through the motions. Love is a way of life. Notice what he says. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God. We not only told you the truth about Jesus and all that God is doing, but look at this. But also... We gave you our own lives because you had become very dear to us. You give the gospel and you give it from a life that loves. Jesus says, the Great Commission, I want you to teach them all that I commanded you. Remember that? You give them the gospel, but you do it from a heart that really loves people. You want to be successful in ministry? You want to be a spiritual difference maker? It really kind of comes down to, can you love the people in front of you? Hard as that might be. Don't get the idea that it's about emotion. Really... The kind of love we're talking here is an act of your will. Saying, I am committed to your best interest, whether you make it easy or hard, whether you seem to understand or you don't. And emotions will follow. But this is how we love. We love. We made it a commitment. And you need to know something. Sometimes we got the idea as well, I'm just going to love people. And that's all great. But love must always be accompanied by truth. People need to hear the gospel. And that's what he says. We came doing that. We gave our lives. We gave you the gospel. You want to be effective in reaching a lost world? You want to reach out to the people that are sexually immoral, heterosexual, homosexual, the people that are greedy, the issue, people that got pride issues, all the lost people, the people that are groping around all these idols that are out there. They are looking for life, but they can't find it. So they try to fill themselves with all the things that can never satisfy. Do you really want to reach these people? Maybe you're related to them. Maybe you live with them. Maybe they're in your home. Maybe they're in their school. You need to have this kind of compelling love. It's kind of like that statement. People really don't care 
about what you know until what? Until they know how much you care. Paul and the team, they seem to understand this. And this is how they operated. See, love is a way of life. It's just how you go about it. And the love that we're talking about is the love that is cultivated from Jesus through Jesus. The missionary martyr Jim Elliott wrote in his journal, when Paul went to Thessalonica, he lived a life that more than illustrated what he preached. It went beyond illustration to convincing proof. That's what's needed. Some of you know of Pastor Jim Cimbala. He's got a significant church in New York, Brooklyn Tabernacle. You may have heard of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. On one particular Sunday, they had a woman who sings in the choir. She told her story of being a drug addict and having the HIV virus. And then she talked about the transformation that that comes from truly trusting Jesus, knowing forgiveness of sins, having this real relationship with Jesus. At the end of the service, uh, Pastor Simbola totally wiped out, really looking forward just to go home and crash. Um, He notices in the back, there's this homeless guy approaching him. And this homeless guy comes, and, and he could smell him coming. He said it smelled like urine and sweat and garbage and alcohol. And uh, He comes. I, I, I said a few words, put my hand in my pocket, grabbed some money, gave a few dollars, said a few things, and, and, and just tried to send him on his way. But I want you to hear what Symbolo wrote about this experience. David, that's the homeless man's name, He uh, looked at me intently and put his finger in my face and said, Look, I don't want your money. I'm going to die out there. I want the Jesus this girl talked about. I paused and then looked up and then I closed my eyes and said, God, forgive me. For a few moments, I stood with my eyes closed, feeling soiled and cheap. Then a change came over me. I began to feel his pain, to see him as someone Christ had brought into the church for that moment. I spread out my arms and we embraced. Holding his head to my chest, I I talked to him about his life and about Christ. But it wasn't just words. I actually felt them. I loved him. That smell, I don't know how to explain it, but it almost made me sick before, but it became beautiful to me. I reveled in what had been repulsive. I felt for him what Paul felt for the Thessalonians. And then he recorded verses, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. You see, God put that kind of love in me. The secret to Paul's ministry was what I felt that night. That divine love became supernatural power. The minute my attitude changed, David, the homeless guy, he knew it. He responded to that love, and he allowed me to minister to him. The gospel got through to David that night. I was a detriment until God got me back in tune. Friends, I want you to know something. Relationship with Christ makes all the difference in our lives. And these traits that Christ is cultivating in Paul and his team, he's looking to cultivate in our lives as well. A confident faith, a clear integrity, and a compelling love. Friends, when Jesus is on display like this, we become difference makers in the world in which we live. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for an amazing passage. How you outline just with clarity that we see what does it mean to be in Christ and for Christ to be 
manifested in our lives. And Father, for someone who has come here today who does not know Jesus, has been trying to do it on their own, that you've got their full attention, that they simply pray with me and say, God, I I want to turn from self and, and all of my sin. And I thank you that Jesus forgives. And I put my faith in him. I thank you that he, he actually died in my place. And Lord, I, I turn over my entire life to you. I ask that you be Lord of my life. And Lord, for all of us, God, we want you to be seen as great. We're just simple people. We want to just bloom where we're planted. God, would you accomplish this work for your glory? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.